0: This morning, if you'll uh, open your Bibles to Psalm 73, Psalm 73. This is uh, not our normal setup, in case you all didn't, didn't know this uh, over here. Uh, we have requested for months to have our drum set in a boat, and we finally, finally did that. So I'm thankful for those that made this happen uh, This is our Vacation Bible School week, and the theme of this week is navigating life through faith, navigating life through faith. And this is not just something for children, this is something for all of us. And so this week and next week, I'll be focusing on this topic of faith and how it is essential in navigating through life. And I want us to read Psalm 73, and it's a psalm that talks about restoring faith that defeats doubt. Restoring faith that defeats doubt. So, if you've got your Bibles open, let's just read through this whole psalm and then we're going to unpack it. He says, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violets covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, and their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, His people turn back to them, and they find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. And if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. And in verse 17 is the key. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you have set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. "'Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, and you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me... It is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. The opposite of faith is doubt. And if we're honest with ourselves, there are times in our lives where we have doubts about God. Doubts about the way he works and about the way that he doesn't work. Doubts in how he did this and we thought he should have done it this way. We have doubts about his fairness in life, and sometimes we have doubts about his justice and his mercy. And these doubts impact our faith. And so when we just look around life, we will see that your neighbor who never enters a church or gives a nickel to God's work, he receives a promotion and a big raise. You, on the other hand, you go to church twice a week, you support God's work sacrificially, but yet you are passed over for a promotion again and again, your coworker laughs at God and he ridicules your faith and yet he's as healthy as a horse. You live for God and you seem to be battling illnesses all the time. The person who has nothing to do with God tweets a picture of waking up to a sunrise on the beach as you wake up with a sinus infection, two sick kids, and you're already running late for work. And then you begin to just ask yourself, what is wrong with this? Because you see these realities then become a seedbed for doubt and the psalmist struggled with that same kind of doubt. And so when we struggle with this doubt, we need to restore our faith to defeat that doubt. How does that happen? Well, you take this passage Psalm 73 and you really break it in half. And let me talk about the first half of it and that is number 1 is that doubts spring up from life's observation. Doubts spring up from life's observation. In verse 1, he says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He says God is good to those who are totally committed to him. But then he goes and he says, I almost lost my footing because I began to envy the prosperity of those who lived without God. He felt the very foundations of his life and of his faith slipping away because he was envious of the arrogant, envious of those that were wicked. And all of a sudden, he just began to share in these next verses his observations of life. And he says, this is what I've seen. And he sees wicked people as three different pictures. Number one, he sees them free of problems. The wicked people that are free of problems. Starting in the fourth, in the fourth verse, four and five, he says they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. I mean, they've got no problems. I mean everything about them. They're in good health. Everything seems to be going with them. I look over here at the wicked and they're healthy. I look over here at the righteous and it seems that they're sick. I look at the wicked and they're prosperous. I look over here to see the righteous and they're just getting by living on paycheck to paycheck. I look at the wicked and they seem to make the team. I look over here at the righteous they seem to be cut from the team. It seems everywhere I look that they are succeeding and that those who are trusting God are not. Everything seems to go their way. And so they, they're like problem-free. So then he comes back, and the second thing he says is they're filled with pride. Not only are they free of problems, but they're filled with pride. In verses 6 through 9, he says, there, therefore, pride is their necklace. I mean, they, they wear pride even as a necklace. And I love verse 9, their tongue struts through the earth. <laughs> That's a great picture of pride. I mean, their tongue struts through the earth. I mean, these guys strut when they walk. They're just full of pride. And, and, and not only that, but they're emphasizing this brash arrogance that they have. They have everything that they want, and oftentimes they get it through nefarious means. He says they get it through violence, through oppression. That word means fraud and extortion. It says they scoff people, they disparage others. And then in verse 9, uh, in verse, uh, nine it says they set their mouths against the heavens. I mean, they're even speaking against God. And they're just prideful, and they're arrogant. They're just filled with pride. And then he looks further, and the last picture he sees is they're falsely praised. They're falsely praised. Verse 10, therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? He says people are attracted to their success. These are godless, wicked people, but yet people are attracted to their success. Even believers Even those who say they walk with God, they come over and they praise these people. And they don't even think about their defects. They just push that aside. And and, and as they watch these people, these people boast of their thousands of followers on Twitter. They have the most likes on Facebook. It seems that everybody gives positive comments on their blog. They're the kings and queens of the blogosphere. I mean, everybody seems to follow, and everybody's praising them. And he says, all this false praise because they are wicked people, but yet everybody's kind of caught up in it. They are presented as the picture of success, yet they act an abomination to God. They even question if God knows what they're doing and if he even cares. But people still praise them, and people still follow them. This is what the psalmist is going through. This is what he sees in his life. This is what he is observing it's interesting because as I talk through this, we also see these same things. Now, immediately our minds will go to high-profile people. It will go to politicians or entertainers or athletes or CEOs and even prominent ministers. But we also see this on a closer level in our work and in our school and in our neighborhood. Where it just seems that those who really have nothing to do with God, seems that things are going very well in their life, But yet here you and me and we're trying to do our best in serving God just kind of keep getting knocked down all the time. It's like they get all the breaks. And when you look at them, then all of a sudden you begin to sense this sense of arrogance and this pride and that they want to have nothing to do with God. And we don't understand how can these people seem to have it all together and yet not serve God and even mock God. And that causes us to question as to whether God cares or not. And the psalmist, at this time in the psalm, he comes up with a conclusion. And he summarizes his conclusion by saying, it does not pay to serve God. That's what he says. Look at verse 12. He says, Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. I have tried to live the life. I've tried to follow the law that, is, that was uh, here in Scripture. I've tried to do everything I'm supposed to do as a follower of God. And as I do this, every day I keep getting knocked down. Every day something seems to go wrong. And it is what good does it do to keep ourselves outwardly and inwardly pure? And if I could just summarize him, he's saying I'm living from paycheck to paycheck, and as I live from paycheck to paycheck, before you know it, the car breaks down, then the dishwasher leaks, and then the landlord's raising my rent again. And last Sunday, Jacob Simmons talked about walking in the Spirit. And so if you took this from Psalms to here, it would be one that was saying, okay, it says I'm supposed to be walking in the Spirit, but I'm walking in the Spirit, what does it get me? Because I'm doing what I believe God's called me to do, and yet I just keep getting knocked down. But then I look at these others over here who they're not doing anything uh, according to what God's plan would say, and yet they seem to be successful. Everything seems to be going for them. So why do I continue to try to live this life and serve this God? This is what the psalmist is, is asking. Now, I'm going to assume that he is a leader in the church and he has, and he has influence because of what he says in Verse 15. Because in verse 15, he says, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. And what that means is, is this person is going through and is making known uh, his, his frustrations, his concerns, but he's not going to voice it to others in the church for fear that he would undercut their faith had a seminary professor, uh, Dr. Joel Gregory, and the way he phrased it is, by parading his perplexities and declaring his doubts, knowing this would undercut God's people. And he said, I'm not going to parade my perplexities and and, and then declare all of my doubts because I I, I don't want my cynicism to hurt others. But then in verse 16, he says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. I just can't wrap up my mind around it I know who God is I've served God but yet these things that I'm seeing from the wicked and from the godless they just don't match up I just can't wrap my mind around it and so I'm not going to take it to other people right now and throw all my cynicism at them I'm going to have to do something different and that's verse 17. And this is our second, the second half of this passage, and that is faith is restored by God's revelation. Faith is restored by God's revelation. That key verse, verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Whoa. If you ever underline anything in your Bible, that's a good one to underline. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. I didn't just try to figure it out in my own mind because I couldn't get my mind wrapped around it. I didn't just go to complain to other Christians about it. He said, what I did was I went to the sanctuary of God until I went into the sanctuary of God. He explains I cannot understand the ways of God, and then all of a sudden I came in to the sanctuary of God. And when he came into the sanctuary of God, something happened. Something happened. And there was something about the greatness, the majesty, the glory of God. And when he saw all this, he began to regain a proper perspective of the situation. And he discovered who the Lord is and that the Lord is just and that evil would be punished. And it's once he came into that sanctuary, once he came into that worship gathering, all of a sudden this began to make an adjustment. Listen, when we come to God and we worship Him, our focus is adjusted. We're able to make an objective evaluation and our faith is strengthened. There's something about coming in to the sanctuary. Something about coming in to a place of worship. I think, as I continue to read through this, I just think it's also the importance of of worship attendance. I think it's important to be here on a Sunday morning. I've got countless connection cards to where people have filled out about what God spoke to them during that service. I've gotten emails that people have sent me that said, I just got to tell you what I was going through, where I was in life, and what happened in that service. It was a song that was sung. It was a point that was made in the sermon. It was something that was said in a prayer. It was one of the shade stories that came up. It was a baptism testimony. There was something in that service that spoke to me. And it's amazing because there are a few that said, oh, the whole service encompassed me. But the vast, vast, vast majority is there was like one thing. There was one thing or there was two things that it just zeroed in. And there were things I was going through in my life that I really couldn't figure, I really couldn't handle. And there were questions I had about God. And all these questions, and when I sat in the pew, I came into the sanctuary, and God began to make it clear to me. And all of a sudden, there was a restoration of my faith because I met with God. And I really tell you, I think part of the reason... That many more are stressed out and swimming in doubt is because fewer and fewer times that people really come into the sanctuary of God to have their faith restored. And it seems like we've got more people stressed out today than ever before. More prescription medications going on than we've ever had before. And I'm not saying the whole answer is to come into a to a worship service every Sunday, but I'm thinking it could help. You know, when I was growing up. Uh, I didn't know I'd ever say this 50 years ago. <laughs> it's funny. As you grow, you think you'll never say something 50 years ago. But yeah, uh, you know, growing up as a child uh, over 50 years ago and uh, you go to go to church and Sunday school and all you folks that were Southern Baptists, remember those envelopes that we had where you had those check boxes on there, uh, you know, read your Bible every day, uh, you know, uh, put an offering, things like that. And um, uh, those... Uh, Perfect attendance. Anybody here ever get a Sunday school perfect attendance award? Can you just raise your hand? We'll just praise God for you folks. Yes, look over there. Do you still have it with you? Some of you carry them. I've, I've had people share with me, hey, 30 years, baby. I got all the medals over here. But, you know, when I was growing up, I'd say, okay, how often do you come to, come to church? How often you come to church? All right, four out of four Sundays. If you came four out of four Sundays, they would say, it's excellent. All right. Every Sunday, four out of four Sundays, that's excellent. If you came three out of four Sundays, that was consistent and expected. You were expected to be here at least three out of four Sundays, and that's what's called consistent attendance. If you came two out of four Sundays, we would pray about your walk with God. We would think there was something wrong in your discipleship. If you came one out of four Sundays, we prayed for your salvation, because you must be lost to not be here more than that. That's fifty years ago. Today, four out of four Sundays. Don't even think about it. That's in the stratosphere. We don't even can. We don't even want to compute that. That is just beyond expectation. Okay, let's go down to three out of four Sundays. If you come three out of four Sundays, you are seen as unbelievably committed. Unbelievably committed. And in fact, when we repurpose uh, the lobby, we'll have your picture out there in the lobby uh, as a three out of four Sunday person. Now, if you come two out of four Sundays, that's really good. That's really, really good. And if you come one out of four Sundays, in today's culture, that is consistent attendance. We've done the surveys. And you ask people, are you consistent attendance? Yes. How often do you come? One Sunday a month. Consistent attendance. Okay, so let's just kind of add that up. If you took that same narrative and said that 50 years ago, three out of four Sundays was consistent attendance, that means that in a year, you would be here 39 Sundays and you would miss 13. Today we say consistent attendance is one out of four, which means that you hear 13 Sundays and you miss 39 You're here 13 Sundays, you miss 39 Sundays. Now, we're in a world where we're swimming in stress and doubts and questions. And the psalmist was experiencing that same thing, and he said, until I came into the sanctuary of the Lord. And to me, the more we reduce the amount we come into the sanctuary of the Lord, then the more we increase our stress and the more we increase our doubts, and the more we are defeated rather than victorious in our faith. Now, yes, I know there are other ways that God can speak to you. It could be at a, at a beach. It could be in the mountains. It could be in a quiet time right there in your study at home or in your backyard or your front yard. I understand that, and I'm not discounting that. I'm just saying there's something special about coming into the house of God and being able to be here and to hear praises sung to his name prayers offered up to him god's word opened and taught to you people sharing testimony there's something about that to where he will speak to you and so for the psalmist he said i was so bummed out until i came into the sanctuary of the lord and when i did then all of a sudden god showed the psalmist four pictures showed him four pictures number one he showed him a picture of a slippery slope. That was his neighbor's internal dilemma. He showed a slippery slope, his neighbor's internal dilemma. I've never had a screen this big behind me, so I'm just going to look at it for just a moment. That's, that's pretty cool. And, all right, okay. Uh, now, <clears throat> I'm getting ready to tell you that when God showed him these pictures, I believe God showed him these pictures by bringing up to him different psalms, different verses out of psalms that confirm this. In Psalm 36, 12, the psalmist says, there the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. And as God brings this to his mind, he shows him a picture of a slippery slope. And in verse 18, he says this, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. And what he did was God showed him his successful neighbor's heart the fears, the uneasiness, the worries that ran through him day and night. He saw the temporal nature of their life. He saw the constant struggle they had for getting more and more because they just can't be satisfied. He helped him to see their failing search for true happiness, that there was no inner joy, there was no lasting wealth, and will all end in destruction. He says they are on a slippery slope. Now I see the wicked over here, and I see what they've got, but I realize they are on a slippery slope, and they're ready to fall down because there's no foundation to it. Everything is external. There's nothing internal for them, and this is their internal dilemma, and they're struggling because they really don't have peace. They got a bunch of stuff, but they don't have peace, and they're going to be struggling about what their real meaning is and what their joy is in life. And he said, I saw them on a slippery slope. Then he gave the second picture, and it's the surging flood. And that surging flood is found in verses 19 through 20 when he says, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. And I thought of Psalm 3710 where it says, in just a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. He says you are swept away, you're utterly consumed. It says terrors, it's a calamity, it's a dreadful event. He said, everything will be swept away. And this was dealing with his neighbor's eternal destiny. And his his mind shifted from what's happening right here on earth, but what would his eternal destiny be? And what the psalmist saw when God showed him is how quickly the end will come, and they will have nothing that will last for eternity. All the prosperity, all the pride, all the praises is just temporal. And it will be gone in an instant as they're swept up into eternity and eternity separated from God. Now, I always knew that there was a power in water and wind and rain, and we knew about hurricanes and, and, and tornadoes and those things. But, man, the thing I can never get out of my mind is December 26, 2004, with the tsunami that hit Indonesia and Sri Lanka and, and Thailand and, and India. And, and I can still see the news broadcast showing where all these people just stand around and everything's just a great, beautiful day And then this huge wave, this tsunami comes, and it just wipes everything out. In just moments, it was gone. Everything was gone. And this is what he's talking about. It's a surging flood. And he says, everything we have here is temporal, but one day, that's going to end. And death will come. And then when death comes, it wipes all those things away, all that pride. Okay, it's all gone. All all that problem-free life that you think, all those possessions, that's just gone. And now you deal with eternity. And he says, and they're in eternity separated from God. So then God showed him a third picture, and it was the strong hand. And it was the psalmist internal deliverer. It was the psalmist internal deliverer. Now, you understand, he has been frustrated I mean, he has been, he, he's been in agony over here, and now God shows him a picture that he has this internal deliverer, and it's called the strong hand. Verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was blindsided with bitterness, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast towards you. Christian Standard Bible says, I was as stupid as an unthinking animal towards you. Bitterness had so grabbed me, God, that it changed my thinking towards you. I questioned you. And then he comes in verse 23. But nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. I am continually with you. That meant that no matter what he had passed through, no matter what his doubts were, no matter what his fears were, no matter what his uncertainties were, God never left him. And this is so important for us because we will have doubts in life. We may shake our fist at God. We may may question God. But if we have a relationship with him and we are born again, we're adopted into his family, and we're a part of his family, he's always there. And that's what the psalmist is saying. Even when I had these doubts, even when I had these frustrations, even when I questioned you, you were always there. You were there. And he says, you're a strong hand. Look what he says. And he says, you hold my right hand. Now, he didn't say that he was holding God's hand. It was God held his hand. And he said, you were clinging to my hand. You were holding my hand. And when you held my hand, you gave me protection. You gave me security. And you gave me a nearness. Whenever I see that image, I think about when I was pastoring in First Baptist Church, Ruston. And Lauren's about four years old. Our daughter's about four years old. And, uh, and, and we had a, a parking situation, so we'd ask people to park a little bit further away. And so at the end of the service, Janice and I would naturally bring two separate cars because uh, I was coming there early. And then the big question is, who would Lauren ride home with? And we'd kind of bid for who she'd ride home for that long seven-minute drive home. You know, we're real close. And uh, my secretary back then used to make homemade sourdough bread. Sounds good, doesn't it? Smells even better and tastes incredible. So I would come in and all of a sudden I'd be sitting on my desk, you know, before the uh, 8 o'clock service. So uh, when the service is over, second service is over, and Lauren's down there and Janice and we're saying goodbye to everybody. And then Lauren's figuring out where she's going to ride with. There'd be often times when I'd say, Got bread. I'm riding home with Dad. It was great because, because by the time we got home, there was only like three-fourths of the loaf. I don't understand why that happened. But, uh, but I'll never forget, though, that I would have my Bible and I have my bread in my left hand, but then I would always reach down and take her hand. And as we walked out that church and went along that sidewalk and we walked and we crossed Trenton, Trenton Street and then went the next block and we crossed Vianna Street and we came right to the parking lot, then we go all the way up to the car... And then we turn loose and get in the car. There was security. There was protection. There was a nearness there. And what God is telling the psalmist, as he showed him this picture of this strong right hand, and he says, I've got you through all of this. And maybe there's some things you don't quite understand, but there is a security. There is a nearness. There is a protection. And I've got you. I'm your internal deliverer. And in the very last picture he shows him is a satisfying banquet. And that is the psalmist eternal destiny. That's his eternal destiny. In verse 24, he says, You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, and he is my portion forever. Not only is his constant companion on earth, But he also will be his presence throughout eternity. He says, what more can I ask for? I've got the God of the universe as my constant companion on earth. And then when I die, I have his presence with me in heaven. I came up with this, we're using the phrase satisfying banquet because in the New Testament, it talks about that at the end of time, that there's this messianic banquet, a once-for-all banquet at the end of the age where all the patriarchs are there and all the believers are there around the table. But everyone is there who's had a relationship with Christ. However, the wicked will be excluded from this banquet. But for this psalmist, there's that satisfying banquet waiting for him. That when this world ends, when this time on on earth ends, and you step into eternity, he says, we've got this satisfying banquet. You'll be with me in forever. So this restoration of faith The restoration of faith happens when you meet with God, but then the second is the restoration of faith leads to understanding. And once my faith is restored, then I better understand things of God. And there's two things very clear, verses 27 and 28. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. But for me, it's good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge. Number one, those far away from God will perish. Those far away from God will perish. It's the truth of Scripture. But the second is that those near to God have a refuge. Those near to God have a refuge, a safe haven, a place of security. And he says, this is what you've shown me, God. This is what you showed me. And so, what a contrast. In verse 2, he said, I was slipping, the foundations were falling apart. And then I get to verse 23, and I see you've got me with your strong hand and your presence And because of your presence, I have experienced something anew in the sanctuary. And I came into the sanctuary, and you showed me all these things. There's a renewed commitment to God. And he made God his refuge, and he praised God's deeds. His doubting ego disappeared. His superficial evaluation of the godless vanishes. And he realizes that God fills every horizon and is humbled by God's greatness and mercy. Now, he still has a realistic view of life. He still knows there's suffering. He still knows there are difficult times and there will be injustice in this world. However, God is more real to him. And there's an increased confidence in God and there's been a 180-degree change in his perspective until I came into the sanctuary. But he leaves it on an action note. And that's the final word, and that is restoration of faith moves us to tell others of God's greatness. Restoration of faith moves us to tell others of God's greatness. Don't miss this. The very last word in uh, verse 28, the last verse says that I may tell of all your works. It was good for me to be near God. It was good for me to be near God. It was good for me to see all these pictures. And it was good for me to see the strength and the satisfying banquet and all of this. <clears throat> but Lord, this is not just for me to feel good about myself and then to leave the service and walk out of the service and say, well, good, I'm glad I, I covered that obstacle. I feel a whole lot better. I'm going to have a better quiet time tomorrow. No, he says, I did this so that I may tell of all of your works. Let me just kind of drive home this with you. When your faith is restored and you look at godless people or wicked people who cross your path in life, you don't see the problem free and the pride-filled lives and become bitter. You see the slippery slope, the surging flood, you feel compassion, and that compels you to tell them about God and His love. So rather than seeing injustices take place and seeing people that are benefiting from those things and building a bitterness inside of us. Why don't we take a look at that and when we see those people, whether it be those that are in the news or whether it be those that we interact with throughout, throughout our day, why don't we see the slippery slope and that surging flood and within our hearts have a compassion and say, I need to tell them about who God is because there is an eternity separated from God that awaits them, and that is not good. And there's some internal dilemmas that are going inside their hearts that they're not letting anybody know that I know they need some victory from, and I have got the answer. I can sit there and tell them about who God is and that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins And that he's paid the penalty for those sins. And because he raised from the dead and he conquered death and he took care of their sin, he then invites them to come into a relationship with him and his heavenly father. And that his presence will be through every day that they live here on earth. And when they breathe that last breath here on earth, they step into heaven, into his presence to spend eternity with him. And that is great news. And what I'd love to do is to help them to get off that slippery slope and to be able to see the secure hand of the father what i'd love to do is to be able to take them away from the dangers of that surging flood and show them the hope of a satisfying banquet that awaits them one day into eternity and that's what the psalmist is to do as he left that service so how long would he have doubted and been miserable if he had not gone to the sanctuary But because he went to the sanctuary, he found a new way to look at life when he went to the house of God. And he was now able to navigate life through a new and robust faith in God. And through this new faith, this robust faith, he was able to defeat his doubts. May we always know that it's important to come into the sanctuary. Let this gracious, incredible, merciful God speak into our hearts. Help us change our focus and our perspectives. Release the doubts that we have and then go out and tell the good news to others. Let me ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes. Heavenly Father, we understand that there are difficulties in life and that we know that we are here to navigate our way through life. We are so thankful, Lord, that um, you have provided us what we need to be able to go through this life so that we live a life that has purpose and it brings honor and it brings glory to you. And we do not walk through this life by ourselves, but you're there with us side by side, your hand holding our hand, helping us through this time. And Lord, I know there's some that are here today that they've been beat up by life and their doubts that they have and their questions that they have. And I pray that the the power of your Holy Spirit, your presence is so strong. And through something, either through the sermon or through the songs or through the prayers, that you have spoken to their heart and given them hope, hope to be able to go through the next day and to be able to serve you better. And Father, I want to specifically pray for those that will intersect our paths who don't see this world as we see it. Now, whether we'd call them godless or wicked or or just unbelievers or just those that, that we look at as just those that need you, that are not part of your family, may we not build bitterness towards them, but may we have a love to them. And may we express that love through not only the way that we treat them, but also that we have a boldness to share the good news of Jesus Christ and to tell them about how they too can come into a relationship with you. So, Father, that's our prayer, and it's our hope that today, being in this sanctuary with you, it has changed our life. For it is, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.